Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the podcast. Today I am joined by Professor Tim Spector, Professor of Genetic Epidemiology. Tim is a specialist in twin studies, genetics, epigenetics, microbiome and diet. His books, The Diet Myth and Spoonfed, teach us about the science of food and deconstruct many common myths about diet, exercise and the food industry. Tim's latest book, Food for Life, which is out very soon, looks at the new science of eating well. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Well, I'm very familiar with your books, your work. I've seen you speak at events in the past and online. So I've got a lot of questions for you today. But firstly, I think a great place to start would be that you've said food is our greatest ally for good health. So could we start by exploring this? You know, we all have to make a choice each day about what we're going to eat, how much we're going to eat. So why is this choice the most important when it comes to all of the other things we could consider when it comes to our health outcomes? I think there are a number of reasons. And there's the epidemiology reason, the sort of boring uh, old-fashioned reason that if you look at all the common chronic diseases and you work out the effect of moving everyone from a, a bad quality diet to a good quality diet, most estimates say you could reduce those by something between 50 and 80 percent. So we know that as one sort of public health act, that would be the most significant for the population. And then, of course, we've got to think of the individual of all the things that you can do in your life, probably the one you have most control over is not your environment, whether you live in a city or um, whether you, you have a sedentary job or not, or uh, how easy is it to do sports or sleep if you've got young kids, but it, it, it's about your diet. And it's the, it's the one thing that we make hundreds of choices on regularly, often without thinking, but it, does empower us with the the idea that we can change from an, an average or a below par quality diet to something that for us is is really healthy and uh, makes us feel better live longer healthier lives so I think it's that it's that context of, of both its importance but its practicality that it, it is in most of us I you know I'm, I'm there are some people at the very bottom if you like of the social educational uh, pile that are restricted in choices but i would say 90 percent of us have the ability to really make uh, all the key choices we need for healthy eating yeah and of course when you hear you say it like that you know you said we can empower ourselves you know it's the simplest thing that we can all do as you just described but for many people it is also the hardest thing you know we know that sometimes people can be told for years you know you must change your diet or you know you might be at risk of these diseases or these certain health outcomes but people continue and continue and continue and say oh but it's just so hard to make those choices why do you think so many people struggle with this well i 
commiserate, but I think we've taken the wrong approach in the past because we've, at the same time as trying to get people to change their habits, we've tried to make them suffer with calorie restriction. Mm. So you've had this two things going on at once. You've got this message that everything you eat is bad and you eat and eat much less of it, which I think is really hard to, to do. And I think what we now realizing is that calories are not the main problem here. It's the quality of the food. So it's just telling people to change from one choice to another that might be quite similar. They hadn't thought about one way of cooking that's slightly different to another. And I think that's that's what we've, we've got wrong. And that makes it a lot easier. I think there are some people in food deserts who don't have kitchens, who just, you know, are surrounded by takeaways, which it is more difficult. But most of us, you know, can, for example, eat meat less and eat more vegetables or swap out some sugary desserts for a healthier alternative. And it's, it's, it's about making lots of small changes rather than some drastic change to your life. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that for many people probably who listen to this podcast, you know, we've heard this debate about calories in, calories out. We've heard the debate about or simply move more. And I think, you know, often I'm sure people listening to this have probably tried different lifestyle approaches, different diet approaches, whether that's because they want to change the shape and size of their body, their body composition, whether it's because they might be training for a physical endurance event or whether it's simply because of, yeah, maybe headlines that we see around veganism or about paleo or keto. You know, there's just so much information out there. And, you know, your previous books have taught us to question diet myths and misinformation. So I was really interested when I saw the heading New Science of Eating Well. Why is it important for us all to stay curious and to remain open to learning new information when it comes to food and diets? And what is some of that new science? If we accept that it's the most important health choice we make every day, a lot of people do worry about their health, but they seem to think that food is off limits or, you know, oh, it's really hard to change my habits. And so it's it's trying to empower people again to be the ones to make the choices not that it dictated by government guidelines or what food manufacturers tell you or adverts tell you or what the supplement com companies tell you uh, or the weight loss companies tell you and it's you know and this is why the public really need that information so they can make the right choices for them it's about everybody having a basic level of education about food which we've lacked for various reasons, uh, particularly in this country, to get them up to speed, to know what type of foods to avoid, which to eat more of, how do you select them yourself without being spoon-fed exactly what's going on? Because, you know, the world is changing, the food choices are, are, are different, depending on where you live and seasons, you'll have different choices. So everyone needs to educate themselves much more about what is healthy food. And, and I say new science of that because that's actually very different to 10 years ago. This reductionism idea that you can transform your health just by giving up carbs or giving up fats or avoiding, avoiding gluten or lectin, when it's so much more complex and interesting and individual. Yeah, and of course we, I mean, individual is probably the first thing, isn't it? Because it's 
ridiculous for us to think that a one size fits all approach is going to work when of course we are all so different our what we need is different what we like is different our lifestyles everything is different yet when it comes to food we do tend to yeah hear these rules that say well this is good and this is bad and of course it's not the same for everybody but why when you said what we thought was healthy maybe 10 years ago to now is different obviously 10 years is relatively short amount of time why do you think that is is that because of the way that we are producing food and, and processing food or is it the food itself what is it specifically that's changed in a decade to make us think oh hang on we thought we should be eating these things but actually we were wrong i think eventually the science has has caught up with the dogma you know what most people believe that low-fat foods were good for you for example we now know as uh, not true and it's it's a much more complex question uh, because most of the non-fat foods have replaced the fat with uh, starchy carbohydrates and actually less for you. And yet we still see our supermarket shelves stacked with uh, low-fat labels. And most, I would say, of the public still perceive that as healthy. But the good thing is now that the you know, professors of nutrition have turned the corner and the majority now um, are clearly saying that you know, what they know is scientifically correct. And it, it just takes a long time to trickle through to the, the general public and the supermarket shelves and GPs, etc. It's not about the actual ingredients of fats and sugars and salt that are the problem, because that's, in a way, very easy for the companies to just fiddle the percentages and add in other proteins and starchy, neutral glues and stuff like that. It's this large list of ingredients very artificial that have these other effects on our body and our brain that is definitely something that i'm keen to explore more with you today in this conversation because i think it's very simple and easy for people to understand okay ultra processed foods and even processed foods you know try and eat a lot less of them and if we could all just eat whole foods all the time every meal every snack was a whole food that would be great but most people you know whether it's convenience whether it's lifestyle whether it's cost there's a lot of reasons that people will eat processed and ultra processed foods so i really want to talk to you about understanding food labels uh i think it's something that as a consumer and especially as a parent you want to be able to read something and know okay what what's in this what am i eating and i'll be honest i think i've become very skeptical about food labels because i just think pretty much every word that i see on the packet i think is strategic marketing so what's going on with food labels and what should we actually be paying attention to and what can we discount i think we can discount most of the stuff apart from a few facts which are useful and i think one of them is the total number of ingredients and the larger that number the more suspicious you should be of that food particularly if you don't recognize most of those ingredients that you would have in your kitchen the second thing i think is you should look at things like the fiber content to see if it it actually contains any fiber and try and work out roughly the sort of percentage of fiber, the number of grams it has. Everything else um, is probably nonsense. Um, I don't think there's any point in looking at the fats. You know, the, the calories are pretty meaningless. It's all about 
the ingredients. Why should people look at the fibre number first? If, if people are, you know, used to just looking at the back, and I think the first thing people look at is the calories, which you've said, not important. And people also, I think the second one they look at is sugars. So for example, I know myself, I'll look at, okay, how much of this is sugars or added sugars? And I know for me, that's a red flag if something's, you know, very high in added sugar. So why is it actually fibre that we should be focused on? Because it's very hard to find something that has lots of added sugars and lots of ingredients that has high fiber counts because basically most good foods that could still contain the in you know the original grains and the skins uh, uh, leaves of the plants etc will have some decent fiber in it the more refined it is the more uh, they've replaced it with fats and sugars the less fiber so as a general guide that tells you you're going to get all these fats and sugars if it's low everything's going to be absorbed higher up in the gut nothing will get to your uh, gut microbiome down in the colon and uh, it's that kind of food so i guess as we discussed a little bit before the question do you recommend to people that actually avoiding you know ultra processed foods altogether and go for whole foods and and fresh things and alternatives uh, you know where where possible yeah i mean i think that's the direction people need to go and I think it is virtually impossible, I think, as you said, to in, in, in places like the UK to give up ultra processed foods because we're surrounded by it. And, you know, it's if over 50 percent of our diet is made up of these foods. So and, you know, we might all, all want the occasional treat of a ultra processed biscuit or a, a, a snack, but try and make it sure that it's not you know, part of your regular diet. And sw- if it is, switch it to you know some whole alternative that you're more in control of that you might cook yourself that isn't in a ready meal or you know some pseudo version of the whole the whole thing it's not just about the ingredients it's also about you know how it's put together and you know we know that ultra processed foods have all these glues in them uh gums uh the you know thickeners uh, emulsifiers preservatives that we know affect our body in we know some of the ways they affect it we don't know fully because it's hardly been studied we do know they affect our gut microbes we know the same about anything with artificial sweeteners we know that some people react really quite badly and can get a sugar spike from some of these sweeteners which uh, we were told 10 years ago completely inert and we know that our gut microbes are affected by all these all these chemicals to some extent and we know that people who eat the equivalent meals, processed, ultra-processed or non-processed, will overeat by uh, at least 10% during that day, 10 to 15% overeating the same meal. So it does have an effect on your brain. And I think that's the more important message than trying to sort of pretend you can just cut down by a few grams of your carbohydrate by picking better ultra-processed food. Well, that overeating uh, is fascinating. I, I, I work, a friend of mine is a, a sports trainer and he's not a qualified nutritionist. So he, you know, doesn't like to give out nutrition advice to clients. But of course, if you're training someone, they'll always ask you, you know, what should I eat? What should I eat? So he often says to his clients, 
you know, focus on eating as many whole foods as you can. And basically he just says, eat whatever you want, as long as it's a whole food. And often their reaction is, well, what do you mean eat whatever I want? You know, if I'm trying to lose weight or if I'm trying to change my body composition, you know, what do you mean whatever I want as much as I want? And he says, yeah, eat as much as you want, as long as it's, you know, whole foods. And he kind of, you know, lists out some of the things, whether it's vegetables, rice, fish, you know, these things. And he says, eat as much as you want, but not with sauce and, you know, lots of different, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's different if you're, if you're talking about dipping something in uh, sweet chili sauce or barbecue sauce. But essentially he says, you know, if it's plain and it's a whole food as much as you want. And he said that typically what he finds is that people eat a lot less because it's much harder to overeat. If you imagine a big plate of, you know, stir fried vegetables or, or fruits, you know, bananas, or it's a lot harder to sit and eat, you know, you're not going to eat four bananas. You're going to probably get fed up quite quickly as opposed to when you're eating something like you know I don't know salty crisps popcorn you can quite easily eat and eat and eat even when you feel full and satiated you just carry on eating because it's the taste and so I think that's a quite a yeah the overeating one is quite fascinating when you think it's very very difficult for a lot of people to overeat plain rice you know yes I mean I think the caveat is that you do need to make sure people are not just eating rice um and they are having a diverse range of foods and so I would you know only partly endorse that advice and say well as long as you can eat a diverse range of plants hmm. there's no limit to what you eat. Mm. Well I think yeah I think that's a really important one and again as I mentioned I'm a parent I think for I think I've read it in your in your book spoon fed about one of the myths around you know finish your plate finish your food and that's something that we often used to tell children and actually i think children are really good at understanding their their appetite you know when they want to eat more they will ask you when they're full and they don't want to eat more they will also tell you so i think yeah sometimes it's going back to that simplistic almost simplistic idea that we might have had when we were toddlers or young children and to actually listen to yeah how much our body wants wants to eat in the book, you also cover environmental impact. Now, of course, this is a hot topic. It's something people are very keen to learn more about, you know, to empower themselves with knowledge, but it can be pretty overwhelming. I mean, I've read some, uh, you know, future forecasts essentially around, it's essentially like the doom and gloom of, of the crisis that is to come when it comes to, you know, the environment. And as I say, it can sound a bit doom and gloom. So what do we need to consider now for, you know, the future of our food ecosystem to potentially a world where we might have less farmland, less agriculture, you know, different weather conditions? What should we be thinking about today as consumers? What's important for us to do now as it relates to the climate? Yeah, I think the environment and climate changes became a, even more of an issue in the six years I was writing this book and in, in the last you know, two or three years. And so what I wanted to do is to get people to think about food in three ways, which is uh, food for health, which is obvious what I've been doing, the ethics of food, which includes, you know, child labor and uh, issues of animal cruelty, etc. And then the third arm is, you know, what is the effect of, the, of our planet? And I think people have a vague idea about, you know, not uh, using too much plastic and um not wasting food but i think it was really important to show how your choices in foods can have a massive personal impact which people don't realize because i think most people think that to help save the planet they need to cut down on their use of the car or foreign holidays 
and it turns out that's trivial compared to just eating meat um, not even giving up meat but just eating meat less uh, during the week and I think once you realize that that has tenfold more effect than giving up your car uh, you suddenly again it comes back to this empowerment of how each of us can you know have a much greater effect through our, our purchasing power of food and then if you know we start to do that then that will change other consumers as well so it has a sort of ripple effect and that was really interesting to me to really delve into some of this and you know some of these things are not easy because you end up like when i was looking at the milks in the in the chapter on milks and plant milk alternatives you know you've got this choice uh, of you know cow's milk versus I don't know, almond milk versus oat milk and you know depending on which angle you want to take uh, one can be better than the other and uh, you know all new products come out as looking healthy and i used to think oat milk was the answer to do everything but it actually contains you know much less fat than cow's milk and it's probably less good for you and it contains carbohydrates instead which gives me and many people a sugar spike so will actually make them hungrier give you a bit of inflammation and then you've got to say okay well are you better off for the planet having oat milk or cow's milk and when you look at it that way um, actually oat milk wins it's not I, it's not great it does use water and other things but relatively it's it's better for the planet in terms of land use etc uh, compared to cow's milk which is is generally uh, pretty bad so you end up making these individual choices uh, but the idea is to learn more about it so that when some other plant alternative milk comes along you can you can decide whether that's going to be good or bad for you and look at it from a planetary point of view and yeah it's very nuanced isn't it as you said you know trying to weigh up yourself you know okay the nutrition side the the environmental impacts uh, all the different things and, and for many people as well cost that is something of course as we are you know the cost of living crisis i think you know i wrote an article this week talking about the fact that the cost of living crisis is is it going to impact and is impacting people's well-being now whether that means because they might be cancelling their gym membership and saying oh, i can't really afford that anymore whether it's because they're working from home because they you know might say it's cheaper than getting the train into into working in an office where they're actually seeing other people so they're going back to that kind of working in isolation again which isn't good for people's mental health and then of course food so many people will say that if they're trying to reduce their spending or you know changing what they've what their 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 outgoings are one of the first things they'll change is food and they might say well actually i'm going to try and buy cheaper foods or might say i might buy processed foods or even you know not go for organic produce and things that are you know more cost effective so i think for a lot of people there are so many things at play and cost is a big one so yeah i think it's it's hard for people of course to i think the scores thing is fantastic and and having that uh, on the zoe app but i think for a lot of people cost is now going to also factor into their food choices as well absolutely no i'm i'm not and i think organic food has that problem in this country but until more people demand it, it's going to be, uh, you know, more expensive. So I understand. But, you know, there might only be certain foods that I would say, you know, you are most at risk of pesticides and herbicides from, uh, you know, and I had to pick two. It'd be strawberries and um, oats. 
and you could say for the others it probably you know it's not nearly as important so you can then buy the cheaper equivalent this all comes through knowledge and understanding and you know while we're talking about um foods i think there are a lot of myths that you have to spend a lot of money to get healthy foods and what i talk about in the book is also some cheap alternatives that people thought were less healthy like uh you know frozen peas or um any frozen vegetables actually are as healthy or if not healthier than than a lot of the fresh ones you get um canned tomatoes actually have higher levels of polyphenols and um, potassium and other other good things than uh, fresh tomatoes. Um, we did a, a really interesting study on, on, on rice and actually the most nutritious rice you can get is uh, the cheapest parboiled Uncle Ben's rice, um, you know, which really sort of shocked me. Um, but, it, you know, you do get these... Uh, these quirks in the system that you don't have to always pay a lot of money. Um, and, you know, same goes for canned beans, um, really cheap uh, ways of getting protein. So I think in these times of financial strain, it, it, people shouldn't just go for the cheap offers in the supermarket. They should use, you know, the ability to get this information and and work out what, what is both healthy and cheap. And like we did in COVID, use this as a, a good reason to think about changing their diets. Yeah, cheaper foods, and that often could be giving up reducing meat, for example, uh, or you know, or fish, just reduce it, and dairy, uh, but then replace it with healthy foods that uh, are, you know are are cheaper. And I think we all get stuck in ruts, and I, I you know, I've been guilty of that as anybody. And I think this is a, each each of these crises has a sort of silver lining. You yeah. could end up on a on a healthier diet. Yeah, I like that. I agree with the the idea. You could be on a healthier diet, but also waste less. You know, I think that's something that we can all probably do. I know myself included. I'm guilty of this. You know, I have a blended family, so sometimes there's you know just me and my son and, and my husband. Other times, my stepchildren. So there's five of us, and you know, you can get to the end of a week and look in the fridge, look in the cupboards, there might be things that have gone out of date or things you haven't used up. And, you know, I think that's something that personally I'm going to be trying to do a lot more of is, you know, using things, wasting less food, cooking things, you know, maybe batch cooking them or freezing them. Because I think as soon as we, yeah, if we all made an effort to waste less, of course we're going to spend more and it's going to have a you know real positive impact as well. Yeah, Mick, I mean, I discovered, you know, throwing everything into these giant mixed veggie soups and I've, I've become a bit of a specialist at uh, clearing out my fridge and uh, making different soups, you know, once a week at the end. Uh, yeah, because I've got far too embarrassed about what I used to do and uh, the wastefulness of the way we cooked. But also, you know, not doing that big two weekly giant supermarket uh, run as well. Uh, I think shopping more locally, the way that, you know, people in the Mediterranean countries do as well. So just changing the way you, you, you get food, um, I think is important. 
I'm kind of reluctant to say this, but hey, here goes. I listened to a podcast about a year ago with Jordan Harbinger, where he talked to a food specialist and he was talking about expiration dates. Now, again, this is a bit of a tricky one, but he was essentially saying that we throw so much food away because the expiration date says, oh, it's out of date. But actually, sometimes these things are fine, especially, you know, maybe not so much with animal products, but with vegetable products. You know, if a piece of broccoli or a potato says that it's a day out of date, please don't throw it away. It's probably absolutely fine. So that's something else. I think we can we can challenge oh definitely i mean it, it most of them are complete rubbish and <laughs> exactly. uh uh yeah and look at it smell it you know i'm always you know scraping off uh bits of mold and <laughs> eating it particularly on all the fermented foods i have in my fridge yeah. and um you know just think how many times have you had food poisoning in your own house uh it's incredibly rare compared to going out to eat and getting it from the you know the local kebab shop or curry or you know or buffet restaurant or wherever mm. so yeah i mean we're we we wildly in, uh over worry about the risks of uh being contaminated or poisoned at home and it's it's totally out of proportion well, you heard it from the professor himself, so thank you for that. Well, before we move on to the final part of the show, I do have one more question for you, which I, I've been looking forward to asking you about because I saw a conversation on Twitter the other day that was talking about uh, looking back. So, for example, 100 years ago, you know, 1920s, 1930s, people thought that smoking was good for you. You know, there were doctors, people telling us, you know, smoking is great. And of course, now a hundred years later, we look back at that and we're shocked and amazed and we just laugh actually, think it's ridiculous. So what are some things, or maybe one thing, two things that you think in a hundred years time, we might look back on to things that we did or said now as healthy. What is, is there anything you think that will actually just be, yeah, people will laugh and say, we can't believe that we used to do that. Uh, well, I think, yeah, we we're, we're, we're already laughing at some of the stuff from the 1960s. That's where the origin, like, you know, eating fats is bad for you. But I think what will, the most powerful thing we'll look back on is that we allowed the food system to be dominated by big food. And we were told that ultra processed food is perfectly healthy for us. And had nothing to do with the obesity epidemic and i think this will be the seen as the biggest failure of government public health services and they'll do documentaries about the corruption the lobbying and parliament the fact that uh, you know governments are spending billions on health care for the effects of obesity and diabetes and not spending a penny on investigating ultra processed foods and i just think it may, I, hope, I don't think it'll take a hundred years, but I think it'll be in the history books by then of, you know, why we were so unhealthy, mm. uh, is because we changed our food system so radically, without understanding its effects on our bodies, and then because the food companies got so rich, uh, they were able to control the research agenda and basically stop anyone investigating it or uh, even putting up queries that this might be. A problem we need to investigate so i see this uh, you know we're at the similar to the earliest i don't know i'd say the 1970s of cigarette smoking right. um, where the food companies are where oh yes ultra processed food yeah it's got 
yeah, there's some bits in it that aren't very good. You know, it's a bit too much sugar in it, a bit too much fat in it, um, a bit too much salt. We'll bring those down for you and that'll be a, a healthier product. Very similar to, I remember, you know, my mum was a smoker and she switched to silk cut cigarettes because they had you know, less nicotine, they were mellower, they, seemed, they were billed as being safer. And of course they weren't. Uh, but it was that idea that you could just reformulate a terrible, terrible thing and make it super healthy. Uh, and anyone who said anything different is shouted down and, you know, uh, the whole massive PR, you know, uh, companies are employed to protect things like artificial sweeteners and uh, preservatives and all the other things that go into food. And, you know, basically we ha we're paying politicians to keep quiet about it. So I think that's going to, all going to come out. I do hope it will be within 100 years. I mean, yeah. it, but uh, we are going through a food revolution. There's still optimism that, you know, we can, if we can control the way the modern, these new exciting foods are made. So things like stem cell meats and uh, meat alternatives yeah. in ways that are, good for our health and the planet then you know there's a chance we can rescue this and that those companies can go on and make those healthy products and and stop doing what they're doing now which is you know basically killing us off early yikes yeah well let's hope so as you say optimism i am usually quite an optimistic person but um it does sound you know it's pretty shocking actually when you kind of lay it out for us like that and especially with that comparison to to smoking and to i suppose the corruption essentially and what leads all of it which is always profits i think that on this twitter thread a lot of people were responding saying that they thought eating three times a day was something they thought people would laugh at and actually that we don't need to or, or snacking and telling people that we should be constantly you know a healthy snack it almost seems ironic because if you're eating well and eating enough maybe you don't need to snack at all uh, a few others that came up on there were yeah there's quite a lot actually around fasting people really saying advocating fasting and saying that we just eat far too much uh, but again it's it's i'm optimistic that these things are the you know we have so much information and it's interesting what you kind of said then around killing us off because on the one hand we should probably be you know the healthiest we've ever ever been with all the information and the new science and the you know medical and nutrition information we have and how you think about innovation and technology and how far we are with some things we should be healthier than ever but actually in fact yeah i'm sure statistically when you look at the obesity crisis um you know health related disease i think we are essentially well, yeah i don't know if we're unhealthier than ever but it certainly seems like we're not living longer we're just dying for longer which again not very optimistic but that's kind of how it looks right now well i think we're we're the first generation predicted to be less healthy than our parents for uh several centuries so i think this will be a time look back on as when we sort of hit we hit this crisis and i think we've got to look not just what we eat and i think you know those um, your listeners' suggestions on Twitter are exactly right that um, you know how we eat is is important, and the the food industry have, have told us that eating six times a day is the norm, and that you know you can get all these healthy protein snacks, other things to which is really good for you. Yes, that will be ridiculed, but I don't think that will be within you know 
within 10 years, I think we'll have quashed that one. And we are starting to already see the advantages of leaving long periods not eating, which is basically what our ancestors did. Uh, and having much more focus on really good meals twice a day, as you said, rather than bad meals six times a day. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Yes, well, time will tell. And actually, that is a perfect segue when you've mentioned about morning people, as I am, of course, a morning person. And this podcast the power hour essentially that concept you know I've been talking about this for years now but it is such a simple concept and it's just that the first hour of each day you know what we choose to do with that time how intentional we are about how we start our day has the potential to impact so many things from our health to our creativity our relationships you know I speak to lots of different people on the show to find out what they do in the morning and what they include in that first hour so Professor Tim Spector please could you share with us all what does the first hour of your day include oh dear it's changed a fair bit in the last five years um, but currently we generally get out of bed and if it's a rainy day I'll go on my peloton bike if I'm not cycling to work so I, I like to exercise first thing on an empty stomach mm-hmm. and then I will shower and have 20 minutes of meditation. And in the past, I used to have my breakfast either before or after that. But increasingly, I'm not eating until at least 11 o'clock or sometimes not until lunchtime as part of this new plan of looking at my, my time restricted eating and 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 giving myself my microbes greater time to recover. And I find this this combination of sort of exercise and uh, fasting uh, gives me greater energy and I, I feel much better. The meditation I've been doing since I was 18, so it's just part of my uh, daily routine. But um, that's, that's, what, that's what I do. Well, I share with you in the movement part because movement in the morning for me is is a pretty non-negotiable. But I had a question for you. I've seen you talk online lots about coffee. So when you said that you exercise in the morning and you're trying now to not have anything before 11 or 12, does that include coffee or is that just food? Uh, I absolutely need coffee in the morning. So uh, <laughs> I'm delighted to say that doesn't, in my view, break a fast. A black and coffee. So a, a black coffee, yeah, no milk, no oat milk. Um, and I can have a couple of those and uh, that gets me that gets me going. Um, and it's good for your gut microbes and it doesn't break the fast. So it's the ultimate health drink, really, coffee. And uh, I think we should all be embracing it as we throw out the orange juice, which should go into the unhealthy section and move the coffee into the health food section. 
my husband will be very pleased to hear that because he is an espresso in the morning first you know within the first half an hour whereas I'm much more I wait because I, I like to have a big coffee with hot frothy milk and and yeah I like to have it but later on but I know that a lot of people will be really pleased to hear that you know if they love their coffee first thing in the morning that it is a healthy choice and that also it doesn't break their fast so I'm sure you're going to be uh, a lot of listeners will be pleased to hear that Tim yeah and if and if you're not into the caffeine um actually decaf looks like it, it has nearly as good health benefits as um full caffeinated because if you have three cups of coffee you're actually getting uh about four and a half five grams of fiber which for most people is about a third of their daily intake as as well as polyphenols which are really good for your gut microbes as well so yeah i think um you know that's that should be that should be everyone's standard breakfast. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And thank you for giving us your time today. I really appreciate it. Tim, could you share with us, please, where we can find the app, the Zoe app that you've mentioned, and also where we can get the new book? Yes, sure. So the main website for Zoe is joinzoe.com. But there are two separate apps. One is the commercial product, which is just called Zoe. And the other one, which is the free app, which is currently running the intermittent fasting community study I talked about, which is uh, you can download the app called the Zoe Health Study and then you can join up for free and join the other uh, hopefully million people doing that uh, fasting experiment and get the results uh, for yourself back. Uh, and if um, you go onto the joinzoe.com website, you can uh, get on the wait list if you want to test your own personalized nutrition, get your own Zoe scores. And of course, uh, my book is available from the 27th of October everywhere, online and uh, in, all, in all bookstores. Brilliant. I'm sure the listeners are going to enjoy this episode. And if you have, then please do let us know. You can share it with someone else who, you might, who might enjoy it, rate and review, all of that good stuff. And I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Thanks again, Tim. My pleasure. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 